Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of The Journey. Now, for our first episode in 2016, we have a very special guest on the show. Stefan Szymanski is the Stephen J. Galetti Professor of Sport Management at the University of Michigan. He started researching the economics of professional football in 1989 and has since come to spend his entire time researching the economics and business of sport. He is a published author of both scholarly articles as well as books, including some that many of us might know, such as Soccernomics, and his most recent book, Money and Soccer, a Soccernomics Guide. Stefan, how are you today? Very well, Paul, and uh, thank you very much for inviting me onto your show. Thank you for coming on. So, usually with our interviews, we get to interview, we get to talk with a lot of coaches, a lot of people involved, really kind of in the game, on the ground, so to speak. But it's very rarely that we have someone that can offer a completely different insight into something that is, I would venture to say, maybe the most important aspect of big-time sport, because sport and big sports, such as soccer, is a business. Um, So the first question I have, though, is why have you chosen the career path that you have? Well... It really goes back to um, a problem that uh, we were thinking about in the organization I worked in in the in the late uh, 80s and early 90s, which was how do you define a successful business? And uh, from an economics perspective, that the simplest way to be a successful business is to be a monopoly. If you haven't got any competition, you can do what you want, charge what you want, and, and make out like bandits and get, make a lot of money. But... Making money and being successful in a highly competitive environment is a very difficult thing, and it looks the world looks as if there's lot, small numbers of companies that do, are successful in that context, and large numbers who fail miserably. And so the interesting question is what what distinguishes those that small number of, of, of successful companies? And uh, we were kicking around ideas, and we came up with the idea of uh, soccer as being a good example. Um, because it is obviously highly competitive. Um, there's a small number of very successful clubs, and you know, the question is, what is it that makes these clubs different? And um, once we started to look at it, we found we could, for, in England, we could get data. We could get financial data on the performance of these clubs. So you could match up um, finances, what what teams spend, what returns they generate, with performance on the field, which of course we can measure quite clearly and we know we have a lot of detail on that. So it was really a kind of a unique way of uh, being able to study what it meant to be successful in a competitive business environment. So that was the origin of this and it just it just took off from there. The, there was so much data I discovered that you could use and so many interesting questions that came up. And then once you started to start looking at England, you started looking at other countries and asking, well, is it different in other places or looking at other sports? Does it work differently in in basketball or uh, baseball? And so uh, really it sort of it, it sort of mushroomed and um, it came to what was a, a sort of a, a hobby really almost initially became came to be sort of um, you know, a full time job. I think, especially for our listeners, a big portion of this discussion will focus on kind of the merits of an open economic system and a closed economic system or, or a monopoly, which you kind of went into briefly. And just from the get-go, could you kind of go into detail maybe about the values of a closed system, a closed economic system, compared to the values to an open system and maybe the drawbacks in either one as well? 
sure. Um, and, uh, and what's interesting to me is I think that the, 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 the drawbacks and the advantages are, are made very clear um, by the early history of, of sports, really, and particularly the, the founding, the foundation of baseball in the United States, the foundation of professional baseball, and um, the foundation of professional soccer in England. And um, as uh, many people probably know, the first uh, professional baseball league in the United States uh, was the National Association, which was founded in 1871. And it was an open system in the sense that uh, they didn't have promotion relegation or anything like that, but anybody could join the league, anybody could play anybody, and they could do it any time they liked. Um, and this was, as I said, this was the first professional league in any sport anywhere in the world. Uh, so it was very innovative, but it was also an abject failure. And it was failed for a number of reasons. Uh, one reason was that uh, there were no rules about player movement between teams, and so players jumped wherever they wanted to play based on who was offering them the best wages to play this week. So there was no stability in the team rosters um, because there was widespread gambling going on, which was undermining people's uh, the credibility of many of the games. And uh, because essentially teams didn't, if they didn't like, uh, fancy their chances in a game and they didn't want to travel and traveling was expensive back in those days, um, they just wouldn't go and they wouldn't turn up and teams wouldn't have a game. And so within two or three years, the league folded because it was just too unstable. And then William Hulbert, the founder of the National League of Baseball in 1876, he developed what is essentially the American system, closed system of sports organizations, specifically to deal with those problems. So um, he, he it required each team to play a fixed schedule. They had to complete all of their games. Um, he limited the number of teams that could enter, so you had to be uh, pay an entry fee and you have to be agreed at the beginning that you were going to play. Uh, in exchange for this, you were granted an exclusive territory, so nobody could compete on for, for your teams. And within two or three years, they'd also introduced the reserve clause, which tied the players to their teams um, in more or less in perpetuity. So a, a system was developed which really dealt with, with some of those problems, and it worked that, that, that the previous the National Association had faced, and it was very successful in doing that. And essentially by adopting this closed system, in, in, was able to impose a certain level of discipline and a certain level of commitment and willingness to invest in a team by the owners. And so in many ways, those were the strengths of the closed league system, and that remains to this day, uh, in some ways, the, the strength of the closed league system as it operates in the United States. Um, um, the... The drawback really is 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 this that um, there are uh, if you think of any of the major league sports in the United States there are only around 30 teams 32 in the NFL and 30 in the in the others so for a country the size of the United States to have only 30 teams of any significance playing uh, major league professional sport is really rather limited now if you think in uh, uh, if, if you think about uh, Europe, and there are something like 700 teams competing in the top divisions across Europe in, in each of the nations. Now, that doesn't mean 700 top teams, but there are dozens and dozens of teams, and any, any town or city can be represented and is represented by a club. Moreover, um, that uh, the, you don't have to, the taxpayers in those cities don't have to pay to attract teams to come and play with them. 
any team is entitled to a city because uh, any city is entitled to a team because there's no exclusive territory and indeed we see many competing teams within the same town and city and what that does is that creates a, a competitive intensity that you sometimes see lacking um, in the United States so um, living as I do now near to Detroit of course uh, we have the sad story of the Detroit Lions who for one reason or another over more than a decade have failed to um, field a competitive team. Now in in the uh, promotion relegation systems of the rest of, of world soccer that that situation would would have to be dealt with. Something would have to be done and indeed the team would be relegated and they would be replaced by somebody else and they would have to try just a whole lot harder in order to regain um, major league status. Um, so and how you think about that depends on how important do you think it is to, to have, have that, that competition there? Um, whether you believe that that pressure, that promotion relegation pressure, actually makes the teams um, try better or, or <coughs> play harder, or uh, makes the league more competitive but more exciting to watch. Um, it's certainly clear that, that uh, one, of the, one of the obvious benefits of uh, promotion relegation is that teams at the bottom are engaged in very exciting games towards the end of the season. So that's that's something that you know you don't have uh, end of the situation where teams are playing meaningless games uh, very often. Um, but obviously, you know, you can argue that, that if you want to make the counter argument, you can say, well, yes, but it's led to um, you know underinvestment, often underinvestment in stadiums, and um, there have been many stadium disasters in the history of soccer, which which, which were a, a consequence of underinvestment because teams spend all their money on trying to buy players in order to uh, be in the top division uh, or stay in the top division. Whereas uh, in the United States, you've had uh, investment in safe facilities, which have, have made for um, uh, you know a, 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 in, in many ways a better entertainment environment for the fans. So. I think the interesting thing is that, and what's always fascinated me about this this, this question and this contrast is that I, it's not a situation where you can say that one system, well, you can say that one system is clearly better, but what, on what evidence would you have to say this? Um, the system, the organizational system in the United States has been incredibly successful, and you have some of the um, you know, uh, biggest sports entertainment businesses in the world located in the United States. On the other hand, you can't say that soccer has been unsuccessful with the promotion relegation system. It's the world's biggest sport by far, um, and uh, has and and uh, you know has uh, commands great loyalty and great allegiance um, everywhere you go. So in in that sense, both systems seem to work. Um, uh, you we could argue, you know. Uh, which one we might prefer or, or, or you know or based on particular characteristics or particular aspects of these systems that appeal to you as an individual but it's hard to say it's not I think it's not possible to say unequivocally that one is just better than the other and there's obviously a lot of questions that can that I have kind of stemming from what you've just explained um, one of them would be Obviously, I think it's fair to say that investment – would you agree that investment into a monopoly is obviously a very lucrative idea? Sure, sure. So, uh, yeah. so even though investment into, into a monopoly is a lucrative idea, in an economic – from an economic point of view, what garners more investment, a monopoly 
for a more free market, open market system? Well, I think the, the standard uh, argument of, of, of an economist would, is that um, you will get more investment in a competitive environment. So um, the returns on any particular investment will typically be higher under a monopoly. But in some sense, the monopolist therefore can limit the amount of investment is costly. And um, one reason why firms in competitive markets invest is that if they don't invest, they will lose um, customers to the competition. So clearly, in a, in a monopoly situation, that threat is not there, and therefore that incentive to invest is not there. And so typically, economists would argue that you will get underinvestment under monopoly uh, conditions rather than uh, overinvestment. Would it be fair to make the to make the argument that an open market fosters or allows for more innovation in the field of choice that we're talking about? I think there's no question that 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 uh, um, that that, uh, that 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 that's right. I mean, I, I mean, it, it, it's I mean, it's clear that in a competitive system, again, you have to you have to offer choice and you have to offer uh, uh, competition on price, and the absence of competition. Means that you no longer have those. Uh, you know, you no longer have to worry about about what the your rivals are doing. You don't have rivals, so um, so clearly there's there's less incentive to to invest and and, and be creative. And once, I mean, I mean one of the one of the questions that arises here though is what you mean by competition. So um, if uh, if uh, if the NFL were here right now, they say and you said to them, and I I would say, well, you're you're monopolistic. Uh, you don't you lack competition. You lack in, incentives to innovate, they would say, oh, oh, yes, we do have competition. We have competition from uh, college football. So that's not the same kind of sport as ours, not exactly the same as ours, but it's a, it's a rival it's a rival sport. They'd say, well, we do face, we also face competition. We face competition from the NBA. We face competition from baseball. Uh, we face competition from other sports. And then they'd say, not just that, we face competition in other ways. We face competition from, you know, alternative uh, shows that people might go to watch um, uh, live events, and we face competition from other forms of entertainment on television. People can watch films, and they can watch, uh, you know, anything. So, in some sense, one of the issues here is to what extent. In, in, there's a sense in which everybody faces some kind of competition, in the sense that customers almost always have some alternative to the activity, even if it's not um, that similar. The question is how how close the competition needs to be. In order to make um, that comp that that competitive constraint really bite, and, and one might argue that the NFL has been extremely successful because, even though it doesn't face any rival leagues in in football uh, in professional football directly, um, its desire and its its ambition to be dominant on television has has made it compete to be the most attractive show on TV, and that's actually a, a very competitive environment. <coughs> I'm curious your opinion. Obviously, I, I think there's, to a certain extent, I think there is a negative connotation to monopolies in the United States. Why have our American sporting systems adopted this and the rest of the world, or at least you know, different countries, haven't adopted a monopolistic kind of sporting structure? Well, um, so... Uh, I, I think I think it's it's important um, to 
to to to recognise again, following from the from the previous point, is that the 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 issue is the issue is often not whether you face competition from other leagues um, uh, directly. It's whether you face whether you're operating in a competitive environment where your customers have have reasonable alternatives. Um, after all, you know, in in any in any other if you think about soccer in any other country, uh, there is there is in each in each country there is one dominant national league. So there's the Premier League in England, or the Bundesliga in Germany, or La Liga in Spain, and so on. Um, so in that sense, you might argue that those are monopolistic in the sense that that's always there's only one top league. Um, and historically, although that's obviously it's changing a little now, but historically, fans have focused almost entirely on the on the top domestic league in their country, they haven't, you know, they, they haven't historically been people uh, in England watching the Bundesliga or in Spain watching Serie A and so on. They've usually they've concentrated on their own national league. So, so in that sense, um, there's been limited. There, there is it's, sport is different um, to a in, 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 to a significant degree in the sense that um, a you need to cooperate with other teams in order to produce a league, so there has to be some kind of collective action. Uh, and but B, people tend to want to see the best teams play against the best, and therefore there's an inherent tendency to have a single dominant league in any in any sport in any sport or in any location. Um, so so in that sense, I, that that aspect of it is not so different. The, the the key difference, obviously, in promotion and relegation is this idea that you're seat at the top table is not guaranteed in perpetuity so you can actually be dislodged by through on sporting merit um, and that's not really the quite the same as a fully competitive environment in which there are multiple leagues of equal quality facing each other but it is a it is a competitive environment which places pressures on the individual teams rather than on the league structure itself so um, you might argue, for example, that uh, sort of England's Football Association, which is the governing body of, uh, of soccer in, 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 in the country, that they do have a kind of monopoly over, uh, over the playing of, of soccer in the country. It's just that the teams that compete in the competitions that they sanction, those teams are not guaranteed security of tenure, and that's where the competitive pressure comes from. I think that's a fair point. That's a good way of, of structuring... Uh, the explanation. Looking at the United States, looking at MLS, oftentimes there's an argument that if there was an open system in the United States, just by the nature of MLS, by its success or lack thereof, people fear that it would crumble from within because of the open system. Do you think that's a fair point, that teams would collapse upon relegation, or do you think differently compared to that argument? Well, you know, I, I I think it's a great question, and and part of it this is this is based on thinking about the history of these things. So uh, one of the things I've been at point at pains to point out um, over over recent years is that um, there is a huge amount of financial instability in soccer around the world, and teams are constantly filing for Chapter Eleven or the equivalent. Uh, you know, and. That's true in in England. It's true in uh, it's true in Spain. It's true in Italy. It's even true in Germany, where people often say, "Oh no, the, the Germans have a highly regulated stable system." It's not true at all. If you look at it, they have 
huge numbers of cases of clubs going becoming um, essentially being bankrupt and, and needing to be bailed out. But that's the interesting point, is that although this happens all the time, the clubs always survive. Um, there are very few examples you can find of, and no clubs of any significance, whatever, no major team that has ever folded um, and disappeared. So uh, give you an example um, uh, of a, a rather sort of major collapse of recent years in Scotland. Glasgow Rangers was uh, historically one of the top teams um, totally dominating the league for a hundred years alongside Celtic until they went bust in uh, 2000 and, uh, 2013, I think it was. And since then, they have been essentially, uh, uh, you know, they, they have the, the, the business that originally, the, the business structure around Rangers Football Club has actually been liquidated. A new company set up, uh, which then inherited all of the trappings of Rangers, not least the, the stadium. And I think that company has since folded and a new company is in place and taking them over. So, and um, there's a, in fact, if you, if you go to Scotland, there's this huge argument and fans of other teams say, oh, well, Rangers has disappeared. It doesn't exist anymore. And they base their argument on the fact that the legal entity that owned Rangers Football Club was liquidated uh, but Rangers fans still turn up to watch the game. The stadium's still there. They have the same colours. They have the same insignia. So in that sense, the football club has survived. And because these football clubs in Europe and in the rest of the world, they really they represent communities. And so it, it makes no sense to think of them disappearing. That they're always going to be revived in some way, particularly since these stadiums in which they play have really no alternative use. Uh, and woe betide anybody who tries to um, turn, you know, the 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 the, the stadium into uh, an apartment block or something like that. They will be serious political constraints and restrictions on 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 uh, reuse of the facilities. So in in that sense, that that so, and and one of the points that I've always made is that from the fans' perspective, there's no risk here. There's no risk of disappearance because the 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 the, 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 the soccer clubs are too closely woven into the fabric of the local community for that to be allowed to happen. Now, that's one way, of course, in which the United States appears to be different. It seems to be that in the United States, a team can fold and disappear. And that, I think, is the worry. And, of course, we saw this with the, with the NASL. Um, and um, I think that's partly a, a different culture of, of sports. And one thing that has uh, fascinates me, and I'd, I'd really, if I get the time, I'd really like to do a study on this. If you go back to the 1930s, it seems to me every small town in the United States had a baseball team and a base played in a baseball league uh, that was uh, pro or semi-pro, and these teams represented communities and then they all collapsed and uh, either they were saved by um, becoming part of um, you know a, a, the farm system or they just disappeared and and I, what i don't really understand is what the difference in the united states as to why people would allow some part of their community like that to disappear i mean in in the united states there are always usually low as there are in europe or, or the rest of the world there's there are usually 
businessmen, local businessmen who want to boost the local economy and want to be seen to be, you know, a, 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 a figure in 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 the in, in you know in the local hierarchy, and you know, keeping your local sports team alive seems to, is one of the best ways you can do that. And, and in the rest of the world, that's exactly what they do, and it's usually the main reason why these teams are bailed out. And so one thing that always puzzles me is why that wouldn't happen in the United States. And I, I do see though I think now changes. I see the development, if you think about teams like um, the Portland Timbers, or you think of my own local town uh, team now, Detroit City FC, these clubs seem to be building on local community activities. And it seems to me that there are, you know, I, I, I think there are fewer concerns about the future of those organizations, even if the business uh, the uh, you know the founding business were to fail, somebody would still take up that franchise and 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 take up the team and and keep it running. So I think I think we might be seeing a change. I, so I I understand the fear that clubs might fold if you abolished if you introduced an uh, an open competitive system with promotion relegation. Um, I I think that I th I worry about that because I think it places a limit on the development prospects, particularly in Major League Soccer. Uh, and I and I wonder, I, I, but I understand that the concern, and I, I but I'm, well, I do also wonder if the, the environment might not be changing, and that might there might be less reason to be worried about that in the future than perhaps there was in the past. Could you elaborate a little more on what you just said there about the development prospects of MLS in the current system, and how you worried about that? Well. <clears throat> I, the, the, you know, I, I wrote quite a bit about this earlier last year and, and got a lot of flack for it, but uh, I, I stand by what I say. I, I, it worries me that, that um, you know, Major League Soccer is um, struggling to make an impact on TV, which is where um, any successful sports league has to, has to do well. Um, so they're they're failing to attract an audience. Uh, you know, it, though the audiences they're getting last season were about half the size of the Premier League audience uh, on on TV, which is which is really woeful. I mean, the, the National Domestic League ought to be doing better than any foreign league, no matter how good it is. Um, and you know, we've seen the Bundesliga starting up broadcasting. Where, you know, people already watch. Uh, the, the the Liga MX and um, the, the the certainly um, uh, there's a lot of fans following Barcelona and Real Madrid and then there's the Champions League and within this within this uh, environment of of uh, large amounts of high quality globally recognised soccer um, MLS is just is just drowning and the the, the problem is is that um, uh, just relying on um, a reasonably healthy ticket sales is 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 not likely um, to be enough in the long term. And the only way that that, that the MLS could ever really uh, manage to, uh, to to compete on TV uh, with those other leagues is if it had um, players of uh, playing to a standard which was in some sense comparable. And and you know you hear this complaint over and over over and over again, people tune in to watch Major League Soccer and they just say, well, this just really isn't as good as anything I can watch, uh, you know, when El Clasico or watching Bayern Munich or watching um, Arsenal or, or whoever it might be. Um, and 
that's that's a major drag on on the development potential. The only way to get those players is to pay them the salaries because it's a globally competitive market. And the only way to pay those players is if people are willing to put in large sums of money. Um, and within the MLS structure, this collective structure that they've they've created, uh, no no individual investor is willing to to make that commitment. And the reason they won't make that commitment is because um, if they did, they'd have to share it equally with all the other members of the league. So in a sense, they'd get one twentieth of the benefit of their investment because the money would go would be spread out evenly across the league. Whereas if you allowed them the freedom to make their own investments and build up the teams as, as much as they wanted, then they would uh, uh, th then they would be willing to to spend more. Uh, and um, I think there are a lot of people who would be a lot of individual owners who would actually be willing to sink a fortune into making their team successful. Um, once again, the problem would be with that that you would have teams at the bottom of the league that perhaps whose owners weren't maybe willing to make those kind of investment who would just sit and free ride on the investment of those big clubs, and that might not be a very sustainable position. But then if you introduce promotional relegation, those teams that sat at the bottom could be punished and replaced by teams who perhaps were willing to, to give it a shot. Now, again, you come back to the problem, well, you know, wouldn't that lead just to bankruptcy all round? And um, a, a part of this is, well, would, would these clubs have the potential to survive if, if, uh, if, they, if their particular owners decided to close down the business? And uh, like I say, in the rest of the world, these clubs are community assets, and so they survive. The challenge in the United States is, could that, could that be true in the United States? Could they represent communities to the point where it wouldn't matter if individual owners lost their money um, as long as somebody was would turn up eventually to keep the team afloat? Now, that leads me to two questions, um, the first of which is, and I'll say them both, and then you can kind of pick and choose in which order you want to discuss, but the first question is, due to the closed nature of MLS, is it fair to say that there is no such thing as a real market price for a player, and is that possibly creating a dangerous bubble? And then the second question would be, we often hear that MLS is losing money, um, that investors are losing money, and yet there seems to be always groups of people who are willing to invest the 100 the $120 million into MLS. So... Is that necessarily a true tale when we hear that MLS and MLS owners are losing money annually? Um, yeah, that's a that's a, that's a those are two very good questions. Um, so so the first or the first one I'd say well, um, one of the problems with I mean I think one of the, the fundamental problem I think with the Major League Soccer model is that it's really a model that is predicated on monopoly. It works. In the sense, if if this really was as you know, as as Major League Baseball is by far the dominant, the best, the strongest baseball league in the world. So, anybody good enough to play in Major League Baseball is not going to be attracted by any alternative. The NFL is obviously unique, and uh, no no other league gets close in terms of um, playing football. Um, you know, the same same with the NBA and so on. That's just not the case with Major League Soccer, obviously. There are many leagues where players would rather go and play. So um, the, the monopolistic structure of the, of the closed league model really 
relies on the idea that the players don't have an alternative and therefore the owners collectively can can make choices about where the players go and that gives them uh you know and, and that reduces competitive pressures and enables them to focus on the growth of the league as a whole rather than on any one particular franchise um but players in the united states do have choices if they are good enough they will and they will go and leave and go play in germany or spain or england or uh mexico or, or wherever there, there might be a job offer because and we see you know top american players playing playing everywhere around the world nowadays um and so this monopolistic model just isn't working so i i think in terms of the wages they're playing i mean they're they're playing the wage rates are so low that players leave immediately when there's a good alternative now you know i think there's they've started to recognize this to some extent and saying well we actually have to pay a premium to bring back some of the top american players to the united states but um again the the i think the the, the underlying problem here though is that how does this ever turn into a top league a top uh, you know a major global power in sports if the wage rates are always going to be set by you know whatever is slightly more than than the foreign leagues will play and um really not competing for the for the very best talent i mean we see this this the, you know we'll know that major league soccer arrives when we don't see a parade of retired uh, retiring european players coming over to play in mls we see you know young players coming over uh, and play and and wanting to get their career going in the US and uh, I know people cite one or two examples but basically we're 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 a long way away from that and the and the traffic flow is is in the opposite direction um on the question of uh the, your the second question which you asked about losing money I think I think that's a very interesting question and um I think there's again I, i've talked with a number of people and there's there's of course we don't know what the books of mls say so we don't we don't know what the real situation is so and nobody knows or if you know if they do know they're not telling the rest of us so um so it, inevitably there's 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 an amount of speculation involved in this and it, it has to be you know uh, hopefully fairly educated speculation so mls have been quite they've been quite clear in saying repeatedly that they're losing about 100 million dollars a year um i did some fairly back of the envelope calculations about revenues and costs and it seemed to me that that's not implausible that that's i i i i could believe that that, that is true that it makes some sense and then the question then that comes to your question is well why are then people paying 100 million dollars to buy expansion franchises um to which the answer i think is uh there may be an element of a speculative bubble involved here is that um these people who are buying these franchises are speculating that major league soccer will turn into something big in the next few years and um you hear quite a few people who believe that in you know in 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 5 to 10 years time major league soccer could be a you know a powerful global league um my skepticism about that is based simply on the wages that you know you can't have that a, a a a globally competitive league would have to be playing wages that were broadly similar to the other top leagues in the world so um you know uh i think uh manchester city's um salary bill uh is larger than the entire salary bill of um major league soccer um and that 
that gives, I think, some sense of perspective here on um, on size and um, what kind of level the MLS needs to approach if it's going to be a serious global competitor. Is it fair, though, to, to make the argument that, obviously, a little while before we had talked about the possibility of complete collapse, if you open the system, and that's an argument that some people make, is it fair for me to make the argument that I would, I'm of the opinion that it's possible that the driving, the artificial driving down of wages and investment because of a closed system and for the players, that could lead to a bubble that leads to the league's collapse, similar to what happened to the old NASL. Um, well, I, I think it's reasonable. I mean, it's, it's clearly reasonable to advance the argument. I mean, it, it clear, and it's clearly an empirical question. So we cannot say, you know, we can't argue on the basis of theory, this will happen or this will not happen. You know, we'd have to try it and see what we need to use. What we need to try and is kind of use our sort of to rationalize this and try and think think through. So see if we can make a reasonable prediction about what we think would happen. So, so I think the question here is, what reason is there reason to believe that things would be different this time? If 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 an NASL type strategy, the old NASL type strategy was attempted, would it would it work this time when it failed last time? And and I think there are arguments to say to say that it would. So. Um, so, so, I, so here, here are a few arguments about that. So, so one, one problem, I mean, one of the core problems of the old NASL was losing the broadcast contract. So um, they'd been on TV, they, they, they had a few games showing, and that was a big part, uh, part of supporting the interest in the league. And then they lost the contract entirely. And it was after that that the league folded. Now, um, that, that problem is just not, possible nowadays in the sense that 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 was it back in a time when there were a very limited number of channels and so you know you couldn't if you couldn't get onto one of those channels you just couldn't show your game now there's it, it's never a case there's so much capacity that you can always show games it's just a question of you know who wants to watch them and obviously there are better networks and uh, worse networks but you're never in a case where there's no network there's nobody who will show you so, so in that sense, I think it's different. I think um, that that problem is not going to be repeated. I think secondly, I think, um, and, and I think this may have something to do with the change in the in the in the distribution of wealth, uh, which has been so commented upon in the United States over the last 30, 40 years. I mean, one thing to notice about you know the success of soccer clubs in the rest of the world is this is to a large extent the big clubs have been. Uh, funded are uh, sucking in money from wealthy individuals who want to be associated with the prestige of the name. There are, you know, nowadays, so currently we've, we see a crop of, for example, Chinese businesses, businessmen wanting to buy into European soccer clubs because of the prestige that that brings them. Um, I think the same, uh, you know, in the past, you know, we think of we, we've, we've, we've had all the money coming from the Gulf region and you know we've had the Russian oligarchs and so we have lots of wealthy people wanting to invest in this as well as obviously local individuals so there are a lot of local wealthy individuals of course you know, I guess the classic example is Berlusconi in Italy but but um, investing in in soccer clubs and putting their money into making teams successful um, now we know that that the we've had a, a huge 
increase in the number of, of these kind of, 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 of high wealth, high net wealth individuals over the last 40, 50 years in the United States as part of the, you know, the, 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 the part of the issue about the American political scene is um, this issue that the, the middle classes don't seem to have done so well, but the top 1% have seen um, their share of wealth expand um, exponentially. Um, well, those individuals are looking to to parade their wealth when they, they get to the point where um, it's no longer in you know buying things uh, you know conspicuous consumption no longer works. You have to you have to you know you have to throw your money at some kind of status symbol to prove how uh, how wealthy you really are. And and in in some ways, soccer clubs are those status symbols. They're really they're, they they work really well for very wealthy individuals who have money to burn, because they attract enormous attention, uh, and they bring you huge personal fame, and um, they bring you uh, a lot of credibility in local communities and um, in, in with with um, yeah with, with with in particular region, and I mean you can see this I mean. Who'd heard of Roman Abramovich before he bought Chelsea? I mean, almost nobody. Now, you know, almost in who hasn't heard of Roman Abramovich? You know, Sheikh Mansour. Um, you think of the way these individuals again. Berlusconi parlayed his interest into owning, into running um, Italy and becoming uh, prime minister. Um, you know, uh, if there was a free market in soccer clubs in the United States, I'm sure Donald Trump would buy one. I mean, it would be a great way for him to. Um, to, to, to spread his to continue to spread his name so I think I think there are I think there are, are ways in which uh, because because of because of that so because of the greater in opportunities in TV nowadays the greater the greater supply of channels and because of the 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 increase in the number of people with money to burn who were willing to lose money to get the status of being owner of a major league team I think there's reason to think that um, if you opened up the system in the United States, it wouldn't collapse in the same way that the NASL uh, collapsed. Now, of course, you know, history wouldn't necessarily repeat itself anyway. What, what would happen? It might collapse in a different way than the way that it collapsed last time. But on the same time, maybe this time it would work. Um, and I think it would certainly, it would certainly, you would certainly see that bringing in a lot of top quality players from around the world. And I think it would be potentially. Um, uh, very exciting. For the last question or two that I have, I want to change gear a bit. We've spent some time talking about uh, the values of an open system or a closed system, but could you go into detail about how this affects the actual players? And so with regards to the Players Union and FIFPRO, the challenges to competitive law, uh, competition law, and also going towards MLS and looking at the MLS Players Union, and the challenges that they face also. Yeah, so I mean, one of the, I mean, I mentioned at the beginning um, the uh, the reserve clause in baseball, which was introduced in 1879, which which in a much reduced form obviously still exists today. Um, and they, the transfer system in soccer, uh, it was, was, I think, to a large degree modeled on the reserve clause, it certainly resembled the reserve clause very closely when it first was first introduced in um, uh, 1885. Uh, I think it was 1885. Um, but the, the point about the um, the point about this is that 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 
a culture emerged from the very beginning of soccer in which players were essentially belonged to the club and therefore the club had a say over the player's right to move um, to another team. And that system survived up until um, 1995 when the Bosman ruling introduced a, a degree of free agency into, uh, into, into soccer. Um, in particular, up until the Bosman ruling, uh, if a player, even once a player's contract had expired, the club still had a veto over the player's right to play for another team, which if you think about it, it's kind of an extraordinary situation. I mean, it's sort of kind of an indenture system where the player had virtually no rights as to where they would play. So the Bosman ruling uh, 20 years ago abolished that. And um, there was then, there was then a, a sort of a negotiation between um, FIFA uh, on the one hand and the European commission on the other hand and you, since most of the big leagues are in within the european union and most of the uh, the european union is uh, uh it's essentially a regulator when it comes to many of these issues um there was a negotiation uh, about what kind of rules would re replace the old transfer system and they came up with this system uh, basically which said that uh, players uh, should not be under contract for more than three or four years um, and that compensation would obviously only be uh, payable if a player moved um, within their contract. But it introduced a number of other restrictions. Um, so uh, it, it introduced a, uh, uh, um, a, a uh, the, the idea that there was a protected period within which a player was not entitled to move, uh, which was longer if you were a young player and it raised the, the introduction of the idea of solidarity payments um, and training compensation payments whereby uh, clubs that had previously, for which a player had previously played, um, ha would be entitled to a share of uh, any transfer fee paid. Um, it also introduced a system which where uh, um, if, a, if a club or a player were in breach of their contract, they could go through an appeal system. Um, the problem, all of this sounds very reasonable until you actually look at the way in which it operates. So um, one of the problems with the, uh, with, with, the, with the compensation system is that basically it's, again, it's limiting the rights of players to move uh, freely. So if, if you or I have a job and we want to move to, to work for somebody else, we can just tear up the contract and say, "Well, we're going now," and and we can't be we we can't be sued for breach of contract in in most situations. We can't now. There are some cases in the United States where um, a judge could actually issue an injunction to stop you from um, taking up employment with somebody else. But in fact, as it happens in, in Europe, those kind of injunctions are not legal and um, really play, uh, individuals have the right to move anywhere they want, anytime they want. Um, and, that, and really what happened with, with the transfer system, it basically uh, removed that right. And then the, 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 the arbitration system is weighted heavily against the players. So... Um, the, the problem is, is that when, if it, particularly the problem arises when clubs don't pay their wages, which is quite a common 
surprisingly common in many of the leagues um, in uh, outside of the top countries. So I, I've had the, in the wealthiest countries in England and Germany, there's not really a problem. But in many countries, there's often a problem of financing and, and, and clubs refusing to pay wages. And the problem is, is that a player, an unpaid player might take them three to six months to actually go through the whole process of being released from their contract and having the right to go and play for another club. And um, what we're not talking about here, we're not talking about the Ronaldos and Messis of this world. We're actually talking about players on an income that might be, you know, as little as twenty, thirty thousand dollars a year. Um, and to, so, to, just to give you an idea of this, the players' union represents something like sixty-five thousand players worldwide. So it's pretty, pretty large employment. So you compare that. You know, I, I don't know what how many the NFL Players Union represents, probably uh, a couple of thousand at most. Um, so you've got a much larger number. And whilst the, the players at the top end of that list are earning vast fortunes that we can't imagine, the, most of the players, something like um, half of those people would be actually earning below the average wage. Um, and many of them... You know, a majority of them would be earning less than, say, a hundred thousand dollars a year. So they're not talking about hugely wealthy individuals, uh, and in many cases, these players have very, because of the way the system is set up, they have very limited opportunity to enforce their rights. So, FIFPRO, the players' union, has been taking uh, 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 taking this to to the European Court in order to challenge the system uh, on on an antitrust basis. So. Even in the open and competitive system of promotion and relegation, you can have uh, illegal abuses of, uh, you know, of particular individuals such as the players, um, and the players' union is is trying to um, um, uh, trying trying to get that sorted out, trying to get the system changed. Um, the 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 worrying the worrying thing with this is always the same that. It it, it uh, when people talk about the transfer system, people always think about the wealthy players, and so they forget about the majority who who actually aren't that wealthy. Um, and so uh, you tend to get the a lot of sympathy going to the clubs, and of course people are fans of clubs more than they're fans of players, generally speaking. And so the players often find it hard to make to make a case. But um, I've been supporting the players' union in this, uh, in their in their action, because I think, I mean, this is just about really giving those players the same rights as every other employee in in Europe, especially would have, uh, and I think that's important. Um, in terms of the American system, I mean, obviously, I mean, one of, I mean, one of the things that, that um, the the MLS will tell you is that, um, you know, compared to the situation that you see in Europe often where players don't get paid their wages that never happens in, in the United States and I think that's a fair that's a fair point they they certainly have um, the the this the system in in general they have a a, a, a well organized um, system for compensation of the players of course the problem is again is that is the is the absence of competition and the centralization of contracts and um, limiting players rights um, there is uh, there is also another interesting wrinkle which has come up recently, which is terms of of the smaller clubs in the United States. Um, as I mentioned, under the current FIFA regulations, um, 
the uh, the clubs are when they when they transfer a player, they are required to make solidarity payments, which may mean making a payment to a club that a player was with two or three you know two or three time, two or three clubs before their current club. And so there's actually a chain that you have to go through to find the right people to pay. And the MLS has been unwilling to, um, uh, when, when players move from the MLS, say to, um, say, to the English Premier League, they've been unwilling to pass those payments on to clubs down the line. And so uh, some of the smaller youth development clubs in the United States are currently suing MLS to try and... Um, get those solidarity payments paid to them. Now, if, if, the, if the European, if the FIFPRO, the, if they were successful in their case, of course, there would be no transfer payments at all. And so um, that, that, that system would, would not exist. And part of the, currently, the way that MLS justify not making these uh, payments is precisely that this would be in violation of antitrust law in the United States. So um, there's some interesting interconnections emerging between the way that um, sports league structures are thought of in legal terms in the United States as opposed to the way they're thought of in Europe. It's great because every time you answer a question, I have about five more to ask. But I think this has been an incredible opportunity for people to gain insight into a part of the sport, an important part of the sport that I don't know if people really give much attention to or maybe people don't just spend too much time researching as you have. Now, coming towards the end of this interview, uh, normally we ask our coaches um, a couple quick-fire questions, but we've never asked this to a professor, to an economist, and to a researcher, so I hope you, if you're willing, I'd love to be able to ask you these questions also. Sure, go ahead. So, whatever comes to your mind, what is your favorite word as an economist? Competition. What is your least favorite word? Um, monopoly. <laughs> what is the book that has had the best impact on your development? Oh, okay, so this it's a it's a textbook called Industrial Organization by Jean Tirol, who won the Nobel Prize last year. Um, and I was very pleased to hear Simon Cooper in, interviewed him, and he said he likes economics a lot, which, uh, which was a great moment for me, because his, his textbook had a great influence on my understanding of economic processes. What inspires you? Um, creative thinking. What has been your most difficult experience with your career so far? Um, actually, uh, being uh, actually running a program, actually running a running an MBA program. I was associate dean in uh, the UK in my last job, and um, running things is very different from uh, actually just writing about them. <laughs> <laughs> What has been your best experience so far? Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I think I just, I, I love doing research. I love writing and reading about stuff. So I, I don't know. I think I, I'm very lucky. I think, uh, you know, uh, if, I did, if they didn't pay me for this, I'd do it as a hobby anyway. So um, just, just uh, the whole research side of my career is the best thing. What's your ultimate goal with your career? Um, 
I know. I, I like. I like in the end people to think differently about the economics of sports and think differently about what sports mean um, after uh, reading my work. Last two questions. What advice would you give to a student of the game? Um, keep studying. Yeah, you, you're, you've always got something more to learn. There's always something that you haven't seen before. And um, don't close your mind to anything. Keep your mind open. Finally, what would you like your students to say about you? Um, he made me think differently about things. Fantastic. Well, before we close, I mean, I've really enjoyed this discussion, and I'm sure a lot of people are going to learn a lot, just like I have. You have some excellent books out. You have, you're on Twitter. You have a website. Could you tell everyone who might be listening to this where they can find you? and any other thing you might like to include um, where people can read more about your work, learn more about your thoughts, and just learn in general. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, uh, you could go and, and look up my name on Amazon and look at any of my books there. So, uh, and my Twitter handle is at S-S-Z-Y. Uh, and uh, I, have a, I also write occasionally for the Soconomics blog, so you can find that. Um, on the web as well so uh, yeah those are probably the best places to find me right now perfect well Stefan once again thank you very much it's been a wonderful discussion thank you Paul it's very kind of you to have me and it's been I've really enjoyed it